Is this a good time to get started? I would like to very warmly welcome everyone to this virtual panel, which has been uh, brought to you by and sponsored uh, by the National Iranian American Council. And NIAC is uh, dedicated to both educating and engaging the Iranian American community in a bid to advance peace and diplomacy, secure equitable immigration policies, and of course, protect the civil rights of all Americans. Now, today, Delighted to be here to discuss this new report published by NIAC earlier today. It's called Returning to and Building on the Iran Nuclear Deal, a Maximum Pressure Exit Strategy. Now, this report addresses uh, the Trump administration's Iran policy and how the U.S. could potentially uh, rejoin the nuclear deal, also know, known as the uh, Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action. That's the JCPOA which was, of course, struck back in July uh, 2015, and how to build on it through new negotiations. Now, my name is Sanam Chantier. I'm a journalist at France 24, and I've been covering uh, diplomatic negotiations on Iran's nuclear file since 2008, from Istanbul to Geneva to Lausanne, and, of course, Vienna, where that deal finally was brought to its uh, fruition, though, of course, now it's very much hanging by a thread. Now, I'd like to uh, welcome and introduce our superbly qualified speakers here. I'm certain you're more than familiar with all of them. Uh, we're joined today by none other than Jamal Abdi. He's the president of the National Iranian American Council and, of course, one of the co-authors of that report. Uh, on the panel, we also have Joe Serencione. He's the president of the Plowshares Fund. He's been a prominent advocate of... Uh, arms control and non-proliferation. For over three decades, Joe has also authored several books, including Nuclear Nightmares, uh, Securing the World Before It's Too Late. And last but not least, we have Suzanne DiMaggio. She's a senior fellow with the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. She's also the chairperson of the Quincy Institute for uh, Responsible Statecraft and one of the most renowned experts and practitioners of uh, diplomatic dialogues with countries that have limited or no official relationships with the United States. That, of course, includes Iran. Thank you all for being with us. A small disclaimer, we mentioned this just before we went live. Before we start, I do moderate a lot of these panels. I really want this to be a lively, dynamic discussion. So if it's going towards uh, statements, I may very rudely have to interrupt you. I hope you don't mind. So that's my little disclaimer before we kick off. And I'd like to start actually with the premise of this report, the reason we're here today, which is that Washington's so-called maximum pressure campaign against Tehran has been a failure and that it needs to end. Why do you think this strategy has backfired? And the second part of the question is, other than saving face, why is the Trump administration at this stage claiming otherwise? In fact, they're calling it, and I quote, a success. Uh, Jamal, we'll start with you, and please, uh, Joe and Suzanne, uh, do chip in at any point. Thank you, Sanam. Thank you, Suzanne, for joining us. And I, of course, I would be remiss if I didn't just say give a special thank you to Joe Serencioni for everything that you have done. Joe is uh, retiring on July 1st and has just left an indelible uh, impression in Washington, D.C. I don't think we would have a JCPOA to talk about um, if it weren't for, for Joe's efforts. Um, 
So to your question, you know, it's not an accident that we named this report a maximum pressure exit strategy, um, because this recalls uh, the experience in Iraq when uh, we went in guns blazing and didn't have a strategy for how we get out. Similarly, the maximum pressure strategy, which I think even calling it a strategy is maybe a bit of a stretch, uh, does not have a conclusion um, other than a you know vague and unrealistic list of 12 demands that Pompeo has issued that have been contradicted by the principal in the White House himself. Uh, there's no clear way out of this, and there's no clear uh, intended goal. Um, we can take at face value that Pompeo wants the Iranian government to completely overhaul its uh, activities in the region and the way it treats its people and the way it uh, eliminating its nuclear program and all of these, uh, you know, potentially laudable goals, but not goals that can be issued uh, by edict that have to be actually achieved through, through negotiation. Um, but then we also see that uh, as revealed in John Bolton's uh, new memoir, uh, that negotiations was never the point. And in fact, when there were opportunities for talks, um, uh, in spite of maximum pressure, in spite of the U.S. withdrawing from this deal and really pulling the rug out from everybody inside of Iran who sort of staked their political career on the prospect of negotiations with Iran, in spite of that, we actually had an opportunity for talks, and the most important and influential advisors surrounding Trump, the architects of the maximum pressure strategy, were apoplectic and uh, were, were planning to resign if talks move forward. So I don't think this is a strategy. I think this is a campaign promise. Um, I think that this is a, uh, you know, I guess a slick marketing campaign. Um, but I don't think that there is even an agreement within the White House or the administration on what this strategy is supposed to achieve. Um, other than this faint hope that these economic sanctions actually collapse Iran's regime, so measure the success or the failure. I don't think we can measure success in terms of Iran changing its behavior. The metric for success is how much pain and instability has the U.S. imposed on Iran. And by that metric, you could say this strategy is a success, um, but it's the wrong strategy and is not actually going to achieve anything that advances U.S. interests. Can I jump in? So let me first begin by thanking NIAC for organizing this uh, uh, event and also to commend them on this fabulous report, timely and substantive. And also let me send my best to Joe. I know uh, this is his next to last public event and I'm just thrilled to see him. So, um, you know, the Trump team has gotten so much wrong uh, when it comes to Iran and the JCPOA, it's absolutely dizzying uh, where to begin. I'll just focus on a few key mistakes and miscalculations. You know, Jim, um, we just heard one in particular that I completely agree with, and that is the Trump administration never really had a strategy to get Iran back to the negotiating table. This was a maximalist effort to confront, contain, and constrain Iran without a serious off-ramp for diplomacy. And I think Bolton's book really just highlights that and confirms it. But another key mistake, um, which is absolutely mind-boggling, is with this move, the Trump administration broke the international consensus on Iran that took years of painstaking diplomacy to build. I think this will go down as an epic uh, 
strategic blunder during the Trump era, and that's saying a lot. Uh, Trump has managed to whittle down this hard-won international consensus to a coalition of two or three. Um, another key mistake I think the Trump administration made was the complete misreading and misunderstanding of Iran. Uh, understanding the Iranians' intentions, the policy objectives, their threat perception, the constraints that they face, and so forth, is a necessary starting point for sensible and effective diplomacy. And the Trump administration never invested uh, in gaining this understanding. There was a real hubris to this approach. Uh, the assumption was that Tehran would either capitulate or implode. Um, and it's true, Iran is severely weakened economically and has become more um, conservative politically in these past three years, but it has not been weakened to the point of collapse, nor to the point that it might place its need for sanctions relief ahead of its sovereign, sovereign rights. Um, so the list goes on and on um, with this mistake. And I think, you know, if we have a change in uh, November, um, and I hope we'll talk about that more, there are a number of ways to get back on track, and the report certainly lays that out, but uh, I'd also like to offer a few ideas, too. And if you don't mind, I'll jump in at this point, too. Thank you very much. Thank you for your kind words. I am retiring as the president of Plowshares on July 1st. I'm stepping down. I hope to stay active in the field and still pop up every once in a while. On, on panels like this. And let me commend Nyack and Jamal in particular for this report. This is an excellent report. I commend it to all of you who, who are listening. It has several things going for it. One, it's short. <laughs> so you can actually read this report. Two, it is very clearly written. It's, it's easy to follow. And three, it makes sense. It makes strategic sense. It lays out a roadmap for how to avoid a new war with Iran and how to restore constraints on Iran's nuclear program. So this, this is the path forward, both for what we should be doing between now and the election and what a new administration, if one should come in, should be doing uh, st starting in, in January. As the report concludes, and this is an important point to stress, stress quote, Despite nearly four years of diplomatic sabotage and maximum pressure, the JCPOA, the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, remains very much alive. This is a key point, whereas Monty Python would say, it's not dead yet. And this is a testament to the, the brilliant architecture of the agreement and the, the strength of its, of its logic. All the other parties to this agreement are still part of this agreement. Iran has not left this agreement. Now, they could have. They could have taken this as an opportunity to bolt, to either sprint for a bomb or to step up their activities in the region, to free the kick out the IAE inspectors. They've done none of that. They have steadily violated some of the terms of the agreement. They see these as sort of proportional violations, proportional to what they call the U.S., correctly, the U.S. violations. But the deal is still there. And so the course ahead, as the report points out, is not as complex as those interested in conflict with Iran would have policymakers believe. This is a fairly simple process of rejoining the agreement, lifting some 
of, of the sanctions, particularly the ones that have been reimposed by the Trump administration, and then working to get Iran back in compliance with the agreement, walk them back, and then use the JCPOA, use this agreement as a foundation for other agreements that can be forged to address those other areas of Iran's behavior that concerned us. You can do this. This is completely doable. The NIAC report provides a very clear roadmap for how to do that, how to stop an Iranian bomb, how to restrain the Iranian nuclear program, how to prevent a new war in the Middle East. Thank you, Joe. I do want to go back to something that Suzanne mentioned earlier about Iran having become uh, more politically conservative over the past years. And can you actually try and talk us through the impact of this maximum pressure campaign on Iran's own policies, which has been palpable. And can you tell us how you think this strategy has uh, shifted the power of balance inside the Islamic Republic? Well, I think um, it's fair to say that uh, when the U.S. withdrew from the deal, it really undercut the position of those within the Iranian political system who favored engagement. Uh, and favored engagement with the West and with the United States in particular. Uh, so with this move, uh, Trump discredited them. I mean, it's very difficult to be sitting in Tehran and advocate for more engagement with the United States when uh, they have had the rug pulled up, out from under them. Um, so what we have seen now is um, the securitization of the Iranian political system, even more so than it was. I mean, most notably in February, there was an election um, where uh, a large group of conservative uh, parliamentarians came in, um, and now they're ruling the day there. Um, we have uh, a presidential election um, coming up in Iran in May. Um, President Rouhani will not be able to um, uh, run again because of term limits. And I think most people believe that will also usher in a hardliner. So we are seeing a move towards a more hardline um, point of view. The moderates have been undercut. The reformists certainly haven't been undercut. And I think um, that is a problem. And if we push ahead to this report, uh, I think it's very important to say that there will be a window of opportunity where um, if a new administration comes in in January, there will be uh, several months to get the JCPOA back on track while Rouhani is still in office. And I think that's the best way to go. You never know who you're going to get. Uh, Rouhani and his team are invested in the success of the JCPOA. I think it will be a way for them to show uh, the Iran that this was the right move for them to make in the first place. So they have skin in the game. We will go back to um, that in Iran, uh, the presidential elections coming up, and of course, a small window that remains. I, I want to go back to something that Joe mentioned earlier, uh, quoting Monty Python, it's not dead yet, is what he said. Can we talk about, Joe, the status of the JCPOA uh, today? I know you said that it's not dead yet, but it's on the verge of it, isn't it? We know that the US unilaterally pulled away two years ago. Iran has, as you mentioned, very much scaled back its commitments to the accord in parts. And today we are faced with a series of disputes surrounding the agreement itself. Where are we at with the deal today? I, I actually would defer to some of my, my other panelists on this, on the, the details of where we are today. But this deal is remarkably resilient. So what you have 
almost all arms control agreements have issues of implementation of uh, concerns about violations of parties not complying fully. And here it's crystal clear. Number one, the United States is not in compliance. You know, there actually is no withdrawal mechanism for the deal. So there's no way out of the deal. The U.S. has just started violating it, just reneged on all its commitments that it made to its partners, to the world, to the U.N. Security Council. It's not just a, a two-way, a bilateral deal between Iran. And, of course, Iran is also violating it. They have gone past some of the limits, but they're in it. it, it, it the IAEA remains in Iran. They continue to inspect the facilities. Iran is accumulating, for example, uh, n nuclear material, low-enriched uranium gas, which they could at some point put back in centrifuges and spin up to weapons-grade material. So it, but by that measure, they are closer to the ability to, to, to make a bomb than they were uh, before the uh, Trump administration started its maximum pressure campaign. Um, but but, they're, but the, they're, they're still engaged with the other partners, with Russia, with China, with the European Union. They, the, they are still complying with all the inspection procedures, mostly. There's some issues about IAEA access to a couple of Iranian sites where we suspect previous activity had gone on, that is before the deal, that might, might be related to weapons work dating back to the 1990s or early 2000s. So there are issues, but it's nothing that can't be fixed. It's, and, and, it, and I think that what the Europeans would like is to just keep things right where they are right now. Just let's go forward five months. Let's see if we get a new administration in Washington, an administration that's willing to come back to the deal, and then we can rev it up. We can fix these problems. We can start re restoring the the arrangements. But Suzanne you, you, or Jamal, you probably know more about this than I do. Jamal, would you like to go ahead? Yeah, I, I think that's I I, uh, I think that's a good summary, and I think that really, I mean, you don't need to look any further than to the fact that all of the other parties to the deal um, maintain that they want to keep it alive. Uh, even Iran, effectively, is saying, "Look, we are happy to talk with the United States, but they have to return to their uh, commitments under the agreement." Um, and then even the United States is now. Um, uh, going to attempt to argue that it actually is still participating in the deal uh, so that it has the authority at the UN Security Council to effectively terminate the deal. Um, so even, you know, th this deal is so resilient that even the spoilers to the deal are using the mechanisms designed under the deal um, <laughs> in order to, in order to under undermine it. And when Trump was first elected, I think a lot of people um, wrote off the, the JCPOA as something that was going to die. Um, every Republican in the 2016 uh, uh, presidential election, save Kasich, uh, said they were going to tear up the deal. And so that combined with the fact that Iran was not receiving the sanctions relief that it had expected because of complications and unwinding the sanctions and because of the banking sanctions, the, the relief wasn't coming. The deal was already not in the strongest position and the thought was that Trump would would come in and uh, begin enforcing the sanctions, not necessarily leaving the deal, but enforcing the sanctions to the degree that the Iranians would just say, look, this is not working out for us. We're going to leave the deal. Um, that did not quite happen. It was Trump who exited the deal or, or terminated his, his uh, uh, compliance with it. But even after 2018, when he when he left the deal, even after the uh, assassination of Soleimani, at, at all these various points, 
a lot of us thought, okay, this is it. This Iran is going to back out. And I think that it's the commitment of the Europeans and the commitment of the Iranians to actually try to save this thing. Um, and this is why, you know, in our previous report back in 2018, we said it was very important for the other parties to the deal, as well as political figures in the United States, to make it very clear. If we get through the Trump administration, this deal is still something that the U.S. will be committed to. Trump is an aberration. Trump does not represent the entire will of the United States. And, you know, I am very pleasantly surprised by the fact that we are now just five months away from the election and the JCPOA uh, is very much still in play. And there's almost an expectation that the Biden administration, if Biden is elected, uh, would return to the deal. And now it's just a question of how do they actually structure that return? And I think that's a very important conversation to have. We'll, we'll continue with that, uh, Jamal. You just said the other parties want to keep it alive. And I do want to very briefly, if we can, shift the focus to the European angle, because the French foreign minister, Jean-Yves Le Trian, announced only last week that the European players are doing their, and I'm quoting him, utmost to keep the nuclear deal alive. Do you I'd like to pose this to all the panelists, actually, briefly, if you can. Do you agree with that statement? Because there is a sense here that they've really, really bowed down to the U.S. on more than one occasion. Uh, I'll respond to that. I think um, we have to give the Europeans full credit that they have stuck with the deal and done a lot to keep it alive politically. Um, but maybe if we asked our European friends if they could do a do-over, would they do it a bit differently? And I think they probably would. I think at the beginning, they may have come out stronger. You know, it's interesting um, that, you know, in this statement, they constantly refer to Iran um, being out of their, being out of compliance. But it's very rare to hear them say that the United States is actually out of compliance. And I think if they had played that hand better, uh, maybe we would be in a different position today. But I do want to get back to something. I was talking to um, an Iranian official just the other day, and he said, yes, the JCPOA is still alive. It's on life support, but it looks like we may be on our way to a funeral. Um, so I think, you know, yes, if we get to a new president in January, there we should be optimistic that if it's played well, we'll get back into the JCPOA. But a lot can happen between now and then. We have four and a half months until the presidential election here in the United States. With Trump sagging approval ratings and polling numbers, there's a possibility that he'll be voted out. So in these months, it's clear between now and the election that um, the Iranians will not return to the table. The chances of that are nil. So what should this, what is this administration doing? Well, they're trying to burn the JCPOA to the ground. And I think if we look ahead, there is an upcoming confrontation in the UN Security Council over lifting the arms embargo on Iran that could complicate the situation. And I think going forward, the Iranians are going to base their strategy on the outcome of that UN Security Council debate on snapbacks. If the U.S. is successful in securing a resumption of UN sanctions, I think the Iranians will probably be forced to respond. And that might mean withdrawing from the JCPOA and or the NPT and or revisiting their nuclear doctrine. Um, if Iran uh, leaves the NPT, gives its notice in October, 90 days notice, that means that will take effect in January, even with a new administration coming in. It will be very hard to restart diplomacy at that time. 
Now, I know snapback, the chances of that are slim, but it still worries me that in these months, it'll be very contentious. We have a, uh, a Trump administration with its back to the wall. It is an absolutely failed policy. Will they try to um, ignite some sort of conflict in the region, uh, draw Iran into that conflict? We just don't know. So uh, I think we have to temper our optimism a little bit. Uh, these next few months could be quite rough. Joe, it's interesting because Suzanne just mentioned the arms embargo, which she believes could unravel the nuclear deal. And there are actually two sides to this argument. Wouldn't keeping that in place at the UN actually provide a second Trump administration or even a Biden office with greater leverage for talks with Iran? Is that far-fetched in your opinion? We don't need leverage for talks with Iran. That, 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 that is a concept that floats around Washington and, for, you know, for example, that we should not rejoin the JCPOA. So you hear Democrats arguing this. You hear some analysts in Washington arguing this, that we should use our leverage, that is whether we're going to go back in, as a way of extracting concessions from Iran. That fundamentally misunderstands the situation completely. You know, our leverage is going back in. Once we're in the deal, that's when we get leverage. That's when we get can get Iran to, to come back in. That's when we reunite the coalition that was able to achieve the deal in the first place. The deal requires the arms embargo to be lifted. So if we did not do that, that would be yet another violation of the deal. We actually are decreasing our negotiating position, decreasing our, our credibility by doing that. Let me just pick up on, on one thing that, that, well, many things that, that Suzanne said, but this idea of optimism. I, I did not mean to be optimistic. I was optimistic about the diplomatic path that you can, what, what the report correctly points out. There's a way to do this. It's not hard. We basically have to go back and follow the strategy that was working, that had shrunk Iran's program, frozen it for a generation, put it under the most intrusive inspections of all time. This is by far the strongest nonproliferation agreement ever negotiated. That's why so many people supported it. That's why when Donald Trump said he wanted to pull out of it, his entire national security establishment said, no, don't do this. This is working. That's why the Europeans said, no, don't do this. This is why European uh, Israeli military leaders and intelligence leaders said, no, don't do this. And that's why the only way you can pull out of this deal, the only way you can argue against this deal is to be fundamentally dishonest, is to lie about it, to lie about what you want. And that's what this administration is doing. But here is the danger. Former House Speaker Sam Rayburn said, any jackass can kick down a barn. It takes a carpenter to build one. There are a lot of jackasses in this administration, and they have been very, very good at kicking down barns. Look at the damage John Bolton did in just 17 months. Look what Mike Pompeo is doing. Look at the mockery that Marsha Billingsley is making of our arms control strategy, trolling the Chinese like there's some kind of like some kind of Twitter war that you can win. You know, there is a real danger that this Trump administration is going to try to kick down what remains of this ag agreement in any way possible. And one final danger. I don't think Donald Trump wants a war with Iran, but he may get a war with Iran, not by intent, but by dangerous incompetence. And there are people in this administration and outside this administration who want a war with Iran. They've always wanted it. And so the danger exists over this period between now and election, or you might say between now and January, that there could be, we could stumble into a conflict. 
you know, and it's not like the Iranians are good guys. They're not. You know, there, there's there's elements in Iran that would like a conflict with the U.S. So it's not just a deal we have to worry about. It's this kind of intentional or unintentional conflict that could flare up and turn into a major war in the Middle East that the leadership of both countries don't want, but could happen anyway. Jamal, um, Joe referred to them as jackasses. I shan't. I'll just call them stumbling blocks because I'm uh, an unbiased journalist here. Uh, another issue that Suzanne alluded to earlier was, of course, uh, the snapback provision, uh, which has been immensely polarizing at the UN Security Council. Do you think that could essentially become the straw that breaks the camel's back? Uh, as I said, it's very polarizing. And what would the process look like, essentially? Is it a likely scenario if they don't manage to come on an agreement with it because the UN Security Council does remain divided, would it have to be taken to the International Court of Justice? Where are we at with that? Yeah, and that's that's the difficulty here. We're really, we're, there are so many moving parts. We're sort of building the ship uh, as we fly it. Um, I, you know, with the, with the snapback section, uh, the possibility, uh, we're really in uncharted waters. Um, nobody really knows what is going to happen if the U.S. insists that it does have the authority to snap back the sanctions and the rest of the Security Council disagrees, but there is a, uh, a state that is friendly to the U.S. that is chairing the council and allows the resolution to move forward. Um, there's just nothing but question marks about how this, how this proceeds and what sort of crisis of legitimacy might occur at the Security Council as a result. Um, I, I think the, the snapback is clearly cynical and disingenuous. Um, if the administration was serious about uh, restricting the you know, ability of Iran to obtain arms, it would actually be using diplomacy. It would actually be engaging China and Russia to try to find some way to, to, to find an agreement. It would actually be engaging the Europeans on this, uh, this compromise measure, which I, I think uh, the Trump administration does not want a compromise measure. This is not about arms. This is about a last-ditch attempt to blow up the JCPOA. Um, I don't think it will succeed because I think it is it is largely a political question. I think that question has been settled. Uh, the the Europeans, the the EU, the Japanese, the Russians, they have all come out and said that they oppose this. They view it as illegitimate. Um, and so, even if there is this crisis of legitimacy, um, and the U.S. tries to move forward with this. You know, I, I see a scenario where if a new administration comes in, it can clean up this mess and it can say, OK, let's <laughs> let's uh, return to normal order here. Let's settle this question at the U.N. about this snapback mechanism. The other thing is that, you know, the U.N. sanctions are largely symbolic. You know, they largely provide cover for other states to issue their own sanctions. And so the practical effect of a snapback uh, I don't know how impactful it will really be on Iran, who is already suffering uh, under these maximum pressure sanctions. So I don't think there is more that is going to come down on Iran as a result of this UN process. It's really, it's a political move. And uh, even if Iran decides, okay, U.S. does maximum pressure, we're doing uh, maximum resistance. So everything the United States does is going to be countered by Iran. So as a result, Iran announces it's leaving the NPT, it's kicking out inspectors, it's it's uh, leaving the JCPOA. Even in that nightmare scenario, I think that if a Biden administration comes in and is serious about returning to the deal, the, the political will exists throughout the world to, to make that happen. And so I still think it's possible, but it is going to be a question of how committed are the parties to doing this. Um, 
I just I think that there's a little bit of a fiction being told by supporters of the Trump administration, supporters of some pressure, to craft this narrative that first they said there was a sanctions wall. They said that Trump was putting up these sanctions that was going to make it impossible for his successor to uh, return to the deal. And it's very interesting that Trump left the deal uh, because of his, you know, animus and his his ego towards his predecessor, Obama. And now it looks like he's trying to preempt his successor uh, in Biden. Um, but the sanctions wall doesn't exist. The president can, on day one, undo everything Trump has done. It's only a political wall. The same with this UN process, I think. I don't think that this is a death knell. I think this is something that is a political question. And as long as the political will continues to exist, nothing is surmountable or unsurmountable, but it is going to be more and more difficult. Just two fingers on that, two fingers real quick. One of the things, one of the things I like about this report is the, is the roadmap you provide. And you provide uh, the sequencing of actions that the next administration could take. And it's a way of testing whether it's working. So you take a step, you see what happens, you take another step, you see what happens. So it allows you, uh, you know, a sort of safe way to re-enter this deal, to start lifting the sanctions, to start bringing uh, Iran back in compliance. It's not a leap into the unknown. It's a carefully charted path. I will move on to the a potential Biden administration very shortly, but before I do, focusing on the NIAC report, it does say that the U.S. can and should return to compliance with the JCPOA and then seek to build on that. Suzanne, any possibility that Donald Trump would entertain this policy even uh, before or even after the November election? Do you foresee that in any shape or form? Sorry, I was on mute. Uh, I think the saying goes, you can teach an old dog new tricks, but I think Donald Trump is an old dog that can't learn new tricks. I, you know, if he is reelected, uh, the thought I sh the thought of it just shudders me. But, um, you know, I would like to think, and I think others would uh, like to think that he will reassess a failed policy, um, a seriously failed policy. Um, but we have not seen him ever do that, uh, be reflective and learn from mistakes. So uh, I am apprehensive in giving him the benefit of the doubt. Um, I think if uh, for something to come about, the Iranians would probably have to initiate, they would have to be the adults in the room and try to maybe work out some quiet diplomacy where they could put together, or maybe Mr. Macron could step in again and try what he did um, uh, to act as a mediator or Prime Minister Abe if he's still in office. I think we'll probably need a third party to mediate that. I don't think this is going to come from Trump himself, and especially if Pompeo is still Secretary of State. So that, uh, I think, might be a fantasy. What if it's simply about getting one up on Barack Obama, something Jamal was speaking about earlier, which does appear to be a priority for Trump? Remember, he did request to meet with Rouhani in uh, 2017 on the sidelines of the UN General Assembly, even if it was just to say, look, this is the first meeting between an Iranian and an American leader in four decades. Have we gone too far for that idea? Well, I think the Iranians have been very clear, and uh, this is probably, they probably feel even stronger about this now after reading Bolton's book, that before they would commit to a meeting with Trump face-to-face, -face, they want uh, the sanctions relief worked out in advance. And if you read the part of the book that talks about Trump's 
meetings with Kim Jong-un, I think Kim Jong-un may now ironically have wished he had done the same thing. I mean, he met with Trump and went home empty-handed and humiliated. Um, and I think the Iranians probably think they made the right, the right move on this. I also, I, I, Can I just add, real, real, real quick, I, and Suzanne, I don't want to portray any of your confidences, but you talk to a <laughs> lot of people on multiple continents, um, behind the scenes and so-called track two diplomacy. You're a very good contacts in the administration with the Europeans, with the Iranians. And I know that we've talked over the years about the desire of the president of the United States to engage in some kind of talk. What I see in in the John Bolton book is not a new narrative, but a confirmation and a deepening of the narrative that is actually explored even better in another new book that's out by a guy named Steve Bennon. He's the, he's the yeah. executive producer of The Rachel Maddow Show. He has a book called Imposters, and he goes into great detail about uh, this s- Trump strategy. And, it, and the, the problem with it is not that Trump doesn't isn't willing to meet, he is, is that that's all he wants. There is no deep strategy underlying it. There is no plan for a deal. It's, it really is just a photo op strategy. And now that all the world gets, gets this confirmed, it, it's, it's very hard for even those of us who oppose the Trump administration policies but supported any efforts to really get a better deal, we don't have any confidence that that is even possible that any kind of meeting would ever would even would lead to anything. Yeah, that's, I, your, that's, your, that's your view too. I concluded quite a long time ago, Joe, that Trump has does not have the capacity to do the kind of hard work that diplomacy requires to get with to get to these deals, especially with adversaries. It's just not there. The imagination isn't there. The commitment. Uh, it's too incoherent. He actually puts in place negotiators to undermine any chance of a deal. He must know this. So um, I think we're at the point now where if Trump is reelected, frankly, my view is we really need to shift our attention not to getting deals, but how do we prevent conflict? How do we lower risk? How do we manage that risk? Um, and that's in the case of North Korea for sure, because they're going to probably do something provocative, maybe even prior to the election. And certainly with the Iranians, uh, they're going to keep active in the region. Finally, I'm trying to, we've been, we've been getting here. We're shifting the focus to, of course, Joe Biden, the Democratic presidential candidate. He has signaled that he would return to the 2015 nuclear deal that we've been discussing. That's if the Iranian government did the same. Do you perceive this to be a really serious commitment or is it something that's likely, uh, Jamal, to get watered down before the election? I think that what the Biden administration, I keep saying Biden administration, I really do not want to measure the drapes before the election because I think a lot of us were uh, badly surprised last time. Um, What the Biden campaign has said and what Biden himself has said, has been very strong. Uh, the terminology they're using is a mutual return to compliance. Um, I, I, you know, I, The devil is in the details there, though. And I think that there is this real dangerous temptation to think, okay, you know what, let's not give up this quote-unquote leverage that Trump has built, which, as Joe laid out, it's not leverage at all. It's actually, it's an albatross. Um, 
the, the sanctions have not only invited Iranian countermeasures, um, but have badly distorted the political dynamics inside of Iran to make it impossible uh, for allegations as long as the U.S. is outside of the deal. Um, and uh, I think that it would be a, a really big mistake if the Biden administration did decide, you know what, we're going to actually try to get more from Iran. Or even, I think the other temptation may be, let's try to deal with some of these areas of concern with the deal that you know, the opponents of the deal and even some of the supporters have outlined, such as the expiration of the arms embargo, such as some of the sunsets that will be coming down in the next couple of years. And even those, I think, really, the, the discussion to be reserved for after the U.S. is in compliance and after Iran is back in compliance. Then once the, the fundamental issue is uh, put to rest, then we can talk about adding to the deal. And as the report lays out, you know, there are, are many different buckets you know, there's so much work to be done with Iran. There's so much, you know, if we roll up our sleeves, there's so much to talk about, but we can't make any of it conditional on anything else other than a full return to the deal. And then we can actually begin these conversations. And I think between now and, and the election, it's going to be really important. You know, we are paying very close attention to what the Biden folks are saying. Um, we're making sure if there's any indication that they, they may allow themselves to be sucked into a sort of political process where they begin negotiating with themselves and negotiating with Washington before they decide to go back to the deal or to talk to Iran. Um, so we're paying very close attention to that. Uh, uh, and, and, um, but, but, but up until this point, I think that they have been very strong on this. And, I, and the other concern I have is I think that there is – Possibly a view that what torpedoed the Iran deal the first time around was the lack of congressional support, that Obama was unable to get Republicans on board. And I think that even trying to solve that problem before we return to the deal is going to be okay. Um, And I think that there are other ways to tackle that problem, but it involves actually making the deal work, actually delivering some victories. And similar to Obamacare, which was this political loser for years and Democrats ran away from it. And then when it actually started working, now everybody loves it. Now everybody is actually talking about, okay, how do we actually build on this thing? How do we actually make healthcare bigger? The same can be said for the Iran deal. And the deal never got a chance to get off the ground to demonstrate these victories, to become a political winner uh, beyond, you know, democratic circles where it is very popular. Um, so, so, you know, we're going to have to wait and see, but I think that's what we're looking at as far as uh, when Biden, if and when Biden is in office. Go ahead. Can I jump in there? So I completely agree on that point. I think the best way to move forward is to get back into the JCPOA on a compliance for compliance basis, and then look for ways to build on it. And I think if, uh, I think, if we have a President Biden, he should aim to do that within his first 100 days, if not sooner. Um, you know, again, getting back to the Trump administration's many mistakes and failures, I mean, one of the things they failed to see was that the JCPOA um, and the diplomacy that brought it to fruition was a potential gateway to resetting a failed U.S. foreign policy in the Middle East. Um, they should have seen the deal as a building block of a strategy that better serves our interests, moves us away from militarism that we have been bogged down by in the past couple of decades, and then reposition the United States as a stabilizing force in the Gulf. He had the rhetoric that he wanted to end the endless wars, 
but he couldn't pivot and really deliver on that. Um, so, you know, even under the best circumstances, let's say that Biden wins, uh, we see a return to the JCPOA with full compliance by both the U.S. and Iran. I would contend even that won't be sufficient. You know, as we've seen, even a solid non-proliferation agreement as the JCPOA, it can be undermined and destroyed by political whims. So we should be thinking more comprehensively about the U.S.-Iran relationship. Getting back into the JCPOA is a starting point. Build it into something more enduring, something transformative. Make the pursuit of a less contentious relationship with Iran as one of the priorities for American statecraft over the coming four years of a Biden administration. Um, I think uh, if the uh, a new administration coming in views it that way, that would be um, the best way to do it. And before we delve into a potential Biden-Iran strategy, I am actually going to interject with a question from one of our viewers. We have John Limbert, of course. Um, he says, even with a new administration in the U.S., won't it be difficult to overcome this reservoir of mistrust? Of course, remember, it took four years before Iran and the Obama administration could begin begin negotiating very seriously, not forgetting that at the very beginning of this year, Joe, we were on the brink of war between Tehran and Washington. The, the Iran agreement is not built on trust. We do not trust the Iranians. They do not trust us. This is the brilliance of the agreement. It's based on verification, on inspections, on transparency. We have a great deal of knowledge of the Iranian nuclear program, we've had it for years, our intelligence is quite good, and what gaps we've had, the Israelis, the Germans, the French, the British, have helped us uh, fill in. But this deal gave us even more. We now know every facility. We have set up a mechanism that tracks their production of uranium from the time it's pulled out of the mine until it ends up in storage as a gas. We know a great deal about this program now. So there's no trust here. It's step for step. It's piece by piece. The, the, one of the things that it's in the NIAC report is that it keeps emphasizing is this is matter, a matter of political will, that we know how to fix this problem. We already fixed it. And we know sort of, as Suzanne says, the path forward, this could be the foundation for other agreements. But you have to have the political will. And this will be the debate in a Biden administration. There's always a tension between the, 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 the people who, who want to negotiate these agreements and the sort of the political caste of the other party who says, well, how would this make us look? Do we look tough on defense? Or the influence of outside groups like APAC on the, the uh, it, it, it influence the, the, the sort of the donor base of the party. There's always those, but here's what I think is different now than, even than, than then, than even a few months ago. The COVID pandemic is wreaking havoc in America. The COVID pandemic is wreaking havoc in Iran. The economy of the United States has collapsed. The economy of Iran has collapsed. We have much bigger issues now that need to be addressed. One of the ways to address that is to end this dispute, is to get this back, is to reduce not just tensions between the United States and Iran, but tensions in the region. What Iran wants to get is to, is to get into the Western markets, get to be able to do business, get some of the sanctions that are killing their people 
the sanctions on humanitarian goods, on medical supplies, get those ended. There is a very strong incentive on both sides now to get back into this uh, agreement as part of restoring relations so that they can deal with these historic, unprecedented crises that both countries, that the world is facing. So that gives me some optimism that once you get a competent administration back, not even a visionary administration, not even a bold administration, just an administration that's able to do things again with a plan, with allies, with partners, that the, all those, those forces are pushing us back towards an agreement, back towards a reduction of conflict. Jamal. Can I? Uh, Please go ahead. I, I do think that it's going to be across the board for the United States. It's going to be very difficult for a new administration to credibly make agreements uh, with the prospect of the next administration wiping them away. I think that's going to be uh, an even bigger question than just on the Iran issue. But with Iran, I mean, same thing. You know, the, the JCPOA actually stipulates that Congress is supposed to actually formally lift the sanctions in just a couple of years uh, uh, in conjunction with Iran's parliament approving the additional protocol, codifying it, ratifying it. Um, and those do not seem like they're in the cards at this point in time. Um, but I think the greatest confidence building measure, the, the, the luxury we have here is that this isn't complicated. The best confidence-building measure is we just return to our obligations. On day one, and, and what we argue is, it doesn't have to be day one, we can wait until you know week one, um, the Biden administration can announce it is suspending these sanctions, it is returning to compliance, and put the onus on Iran to return. Um, and there are other ways to do that. The United States could actually appeal to the Joint Commission. We want to re-enter the agreement. There's no actual structure for how to do that, but you go to the Joint Commission under the JCPOA, and you, you have the, G, the, the Joint Commission decide. This is Iran, U.S., this is what you need to do to be back in compliance. The, the luxury there is also that if the U.S. suspends the sanctions on day one, that doesn't mean that Iran gets the relief. Uh, businesses, all these other entities are not going to flood back into doing business with Iran as long as there is this uncertainty about what the sanctions relief is actually going to entail. We saw that with the, the first round of the JCPOA, where a lot of businesses uh, were, were unwilling to go in because of all the political uncertainty around a potential you know, Trump election. Um, so, so that's how you, I think, you don't need confidence for that first step. And then once we get to that point, there are a number of things that we can do to actually start to build that confidence. Um, we talk about, you know, and, and Ambassador Limbert wrote, literally wrote the book on diplomacy with Iran. So I don't think he needs to, uh, he's, this isn't educational for him, but you know, there are confidence building measures. There's people to people diplomacy, there's scientific exchanges, there's terminating the, the, the travel ban, the Muslim ban on Iran. There are all these things that can be done to signal to Iran that this is a new, this is a new day. Uh, this is a new pathway. And then both sides are going to figure have to figure out how do we get our own political houses in order so that we can actually deliver on these promises in the long term and it won't be scuttled by a future spoiler. Jamal, earlier you mentioned we're all very closely observing what the Biden folks are saying when it comes to a potential return to the nuclear deal. And my question is, I fully admit, is going to be overtly optimistic, and I'll put this to any of you. Uh, because, as you said, we have to get over the trust and confidence-building measures before we can actually revive the JCPOA. Have there been any indication from the Biden folks that they would be potentially open to broader deals with Iran 
beyond the nuclear file. And I understand that this is extremely optimistic to think about. Go ahead, Suzanne. Yeah. I mean, I think uh, several, a couple of Biden advisors have re, re, uh, recently written about how they see U.S. policy in the Middle East, how they would reset it, how they would move forward on that. And there are two key elements that struck me. One is the strength the U.S. military footprint in the region, which I wholeheartedly agree with. And the other is more diplomacy. And I do think if um, the Biden administration is going to go that route, getting back into the deal and beginning conversations with the Iranians about their role in the region will help them accomplish these two goals that they have set. Um, so to broaden the conversation, uh, a Biden administration uh, should convey a new approach to the Middle East. And I think the Iranians would be more apt to engage in discussions about the region if first we're back in the deal. And then second, if the administration, a new administration signaled early that it plans to reposition the U.S. as a stabilizing force, as a re responsible player in the Middle East. And also that it is uh, looking to strike a U.S. strategic balance between Saudi Arabia and Iran as part of this new, new U.S. approach. Uh, with the Trump administration, we have seen um, the administration side with the Saudis 100 percent. That has really made um, the situation much more combustible. Uh, we've seen it on the ground. And it really has given the Saudis carte blanche. They have no reason to end the war in Yemen. Uh, they have no reason to be uh, come to the table with the Iranians. So I think this will require a reassessment in U.S. policies towards Riyadh and Tehran. And it will have to include a major effort to persuade both countries that developing an uh, effective mode of engagement, let's call it a modus vivendi, would better serve their interests. Uh, and for the Iranians to play ball, we're going to have to get back in the deal and reestablish that relationship. Um, so I know what I'm suggesting is a big picture view of the Iranian nuclear deal. But I think if we look at it from that way, it would create openings for broader dialogue, particularly in the region, whether it's reaching a political settlement to end the war in Yemen positioning ISIS as a common threat to both the U.S. and the Iranians, uh, re-engaging in regional dialogue on Syria and Afghanistan. Of course, there's a lot of common interest between uh, Washington and Tehran. Uh, and then ultimately opening a dialogue on a framework for peace in the region. Um, and even in non-traditional security issues like the climate crisis, water security, pandemics, for sure, um, looking at those. So that's a huge agenda. But my point is, uh, I, you know, I, I can't see the Iranians coming to the table on any, even one or two of these issues without uh, reconstituting the JCPOA. Joe, Suzanne's made several interesting points there because at the moment, as it stands, there are signals uh, coming from Iran that they're very much unlikely to scale back their missiles program. That's proven to be a stumbling block uh, or change their strategy in the region because they're kind of currently faced with the maximum pressure campaign that we've been talking about, the Israeli 
Saudi access that Suzanne just spoke about, and of course, Western arms exports uh, to the GCC. What can the other side do to bring the Iranians on board? Because remember, for them, there has been a problem of breaching from the US side whilst they were complying to all terms of the JCPOA, which was approved by the IAEA. I believe that they produced 13, 14 reports prior to Iran breaching certain terms of the agreement. Well, you have to understand what the Iranians want. You know, I don't think they want a nuclear bomb at this point. I think they'd like to have the option of building one, but they don't, they're not racing to a bomb, which is the main reason we we're negotiating with Iran uh, on this program. I don't think they want instability in the region. I don't think they have a plan for a new Iranian or a Persian empire. I, I don't think that's what they want. What they want is to be able to do business. What they want is to be able to make money. They want to be back into the Western economic system. That's what they want. They want security. They don't want to be attacked. They're in a rivalry with Saudi Arabia. You know, it, it goes back, it has religious roots that go back millennia, but more, but has, you know, ge geographic geo geopolitical dynamics that go back decades. But they want security. You can give them that. You can satisfy their economic interests. You can satisfy their security interests. This isn't a concession to Iran. This is diplomacy. This is international relations 101. This is how the world works. The main, there's been impediments to this, of course, by Iranian behavior and what's going on with the Iranians. Again, these guys are no angels. There are people in that regime that really do want to do us harm. Okay. But the biggest stumbling block really has been the United States. And one of the re reasons for that has been U.S. politics. You got to understand there was nearly universal support for this agreement. Are you all our allies, with a couple of exceptions, we're all in favor of it. The military intelligence apparatus of, of, of the, in the Western world was all in favor of it. There were hundreds of former diplomats, hundreds of former military and intelligence officials in favor of this deal. What made it so complicated? U.S. politics. And what were those U.S. politics? The intervention of the Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu in the internal affairs of the United States, aided by pro Netanyahu groups, not pro-Israel groups. APAC has moved from being pro-Israel to being pro-Likud, pro-Bibi Netanyahu. That's what complicated things. They threatened American politicians that if they supported the steel, they would be defeated. Well, guess what? The politics have shifted. Not one politician who supported the steel was defeated in election. But what just happened? Elliot Engel was defeated in his primary election by an, an, an insurgent progressive in the Democratic Party. So you have had, and this was an issue in the campaign. This was an issue in the campaign. So what you see is a shift in, 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 in the Democratic Party politics, in American politics. And if Joe Biden is elected and Trump and the Republican Party are defeated, that is going to be a huge defeat for the party that's going to require a fundamental reconstruction and rethink of the Republican Party politics. What do they stand for? Who are they? What do they represent? You have to understand what a sweeping transformation this will be for American politics, giving the next president much more freedom of maneuver if he follows Barack Obama's advice. Obama just said, the Democratic Party has to respond to this moment. The Democratic Party has to be bold. In this case, being bold is safe. 
Being bold is easy. Being bold is going back to the deal that was working, that is supported by our military, that is supported by our allies. Now, time is of the essence here, both on this panel and when it comes to the window to return to the JCPOA, because of course, we spoke about this very briefly earlier, Iran's presidential elections are coming up in 2021, and who knows what the policies of the next president will be. Don't forget the pendulum swung so fast from Ahmadinejad to Rouhani that we've got whiplash, and so it can swing back again. Where do we stand with this brief window? And actually, I have a question from one of our viewers, Human Majd. Uh, he's saying, even if a Biden administration returns to the JCPOA, there won't be enough time between inauguration and Iran's presidential election, which I just mentioned, for any sanction relief to be felt by the public. And that bodes ill for the moderates. Who would like to take that? Um, <clears throat> I, I think I think Human is, um, is on to something. I, I do think that there are ways that the United States can ensure that the sanctions relief is felt to some degree. Um, that is why it's so important that this conversation is not about leverage, but about incentives, about how do we, uh, you know, restore confidence? How do we show Iran that, you know, the the benefit of their bargain is still attainable? Um, and the other factor, I, you know, Jake Sullivan, who is, you know, one of Biden's, if not the top foreign policy advisor for Biden, um, ha has written about, you know, forward-leaning diplomacy, the need to engage Iran on all these things. Um, but also in a recent conversation, he talked about, you know, he said that the presidential election in Iran certainly will have an impact. Um, and he is somebody who, unlike some of the hawks here in Washington, does acknowledge there are politics in Iran. This is not, you know, yes, there's a supreme leader, but uh, he does rule through politics and, and, and some degree of consensus. Um, but he, he talked about uh, how, you know, the talks with Iran actually did begin quietly in, uh, through back channels uh, under the Ahmadinejad presidency. Um, and there has been, I think, a decision at the senior most levels of leadership uh, with the, the leader himself in Iran that, Iran does not want necessarily relations with the United States, but Iran does need access to Europe. And they realize that in order for that to happen, they do need to engage the United States and, and put this, this conflict at least uh, uh, at rest to some degree. So I think that there is a will inside of Iran to do this. There are, of course, the public politics that, that come with it. And so if you know, if a new administration is unable to actually show Iran, look, this wasn't a bad deal. We actually are going to make this work. We're going to, I mean, who knows what's going to be happening then? There may be an opportunity for a major gesture around the pandemic and COVID. Uh, there, there are lots of things that the United States can do to immediately show that we're on a new track. Um, but that's why it's so important that no time is wasted, that we don't dither, we go back to the deal, and we immediately begin engaging Iran on other ways that we can actually make this work for them and demonstrate to Iranians that this period of disillusionment that has followed the withdrawal from the JCPOA um, inside of Iran, that this is not permanent, that there is actually hope for change and actually hope for a better future uh, with engagement. And I think, you know, hopefully that actually has a positive effect on the elections, but we cannot count on any of that. What we do need to count on is returning to our obligations so that we can begin those those dialogues. Suzanne, speaking of this, yeah. when, please go ahead. 
there, there's a point on sanctions. It's going to take a while for average Iranians to feel it, but uh, the relief. But I think there are two things that the, a new Biden administration can do immediately to signal, uh, first, that it's making a clean break from the disastrous policies of the Trump administration and is thinking differently about Iran. The first is really to articulate a clear separation between humanitarian and political issues and to act quickly to clear a path for uh, legitimate humanitarian trade. Um, you know, food, medicines, medical equipment, uh, yes, and uh, working with the Europeans on that in particular, but also Asian uh, countries that are interested in being involved in that. The second is to rescind the restrictions preventing Iranian citizens from entering the United States. Uh, and this should be probably part of an overall reversal of the Trump administration's racist travel ban. Uh, and this, of course, could include a process for expediting student visas for Iranians accepted into programs at American colleges and universities. These are a couple of things. There's more, but that I think uh, an administration could do early on to signal uh, we're separating ourselves from uh, the failed policies of Trump and we're willing to start anew. But I also think, you know, the Iranians have to do some things differently, too. And I'll just mention one. You know, when the deal was concluded during the Obama administration, um, the Iranians were very uh, committed to not exploring other issues, uh, other dialogues with the United States until a few, two or three years where the sanctions relief was in effect and working. You know, I think this was a big mistake. Um, and in retrospect, I'm convinced it was. I think uh, dialogue on other issues should have happened immediately. This would have given uh, a foundation to the JCPOA that uh, would have uh, been more solid. And maybe it would have been harder to come out of the deal if we actually had some other um, uh, accomplishments under our belt. Uh, so I would, you know, really fault the Iranians for not moving forward with that. Um, I really think it came back to bite them in the end. I think it's time for us to take a few questions uh, from our viewers. These were actually submitted, uh, Joe, before the panel. I'll, I'll put the first one to you and we'll try and quickly go through as many as we can. So if we can keep the responses a little bit more brief. We have one here and it's about the access-related issues. That's, of course, access to Iran's nuclear sites. You mentioned two locations have been problematic, and this has come up between Iran and the IAEA. How is that going to pan out? And this question is very significant because it does come a week after the board issued what was referred to as a mild rebuke to Iran. There's one thing to be clear about here. What we're talking about is access where to sites where we believe there was former work on nuclear weapons. We're not talking about anything that that would expose a secret bomb program. I'm telling you, our intelligence on the Iranian program is exquisite. We know a lot about what they're doing, and this the JCPOA just makes it better. So we're not really worried that much about a, 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 a secret program that's going on that, and we need to have the access and they're denying it and therefore they're going to pop up with a bomb. That's not what's going on. What, what this issue is about is settling historic questions. 
Because Iran did have a nuclear weapons program in the 80s and 90s. U.S. intelligence confirms that it ended around 2003, but Iran has lied about it. They deny it, right? And so they don't want us to go find the evidence of it because it exposes them for lying about their past program. So that's the motivation around why the Iranians are resisting these inspections. And that's some of the, the desire on the part of all of us to try to know, get at the historic truth. So that's what's going on. Are we going to resolve those inspection questions without returning the JCPOA? I don't think so. Uh, what's what's Iran's incentive for for doing so? That's why I say you have to get back into the Iran deal in order to get the leverage that you need to bring Iran into compliance, in order to get the leverage that you need to resolve some of these historic questions. Suzanne, the next question's for you, and then I'll come to Jamal. Uh, This is from our viewer. Uh, We don't have a name here, anonymous. Uh, How would Biden, if he were to be elected and the Democratic Party, deal with both Israeli and Republican pressure, since they have and will do their utmost to derail the peace process. And I'm going to add to that equation, of course, Saudi Arabia. Yes. So this is going to take a feat of superb management. Uh, I think as we saw with the Obama administration, when uh, they, they moved forward with negotiating with the Iranians, they felt that they had to do it in secret in order to protect it from outsiders who would not be happy about it. Um, But I also think, you know, the Obama administration maybe took it a little too far um, in not providing enough uh, assurances to others that this deal was in their interest, particularly, I think, the Saudis and maybe the Emiratis. Um, So there's not going to be any shortcut for the Biden administration how to deal with, make the Israelis feel safe, make the... the, uh, uh, countries in the Gulf feel the same way, and not to mention our own Congress. Uh, this is going to take a major effort on the administration to be communicative um, on these points, to make sure to bring them along. And I want to say something very special <laughs> to our members of Congress. Those that voted, that did not support the Iran deal, shame on you. The Democrats that did not, and of course the um uh, senators, uh, many of here, uh, many are based here in my home state where I am now, New York. Shame on you for not doing that. And I see some of them maybe have been voted out now, uh, yesterday in the election. I would hope that if a Biden administration comes in, uh, moves forward with coming back into this deal that advances our interests uh, 100%, that the U.S. Congress on the Democratic side lines up with 100% support and in the Senate, too. Anything short of that would just be outrageous, uh, and it would just infuriate me. Jamal, the next question is for you again from one of our viewers, um, and this is, for me, the million-dollar question. Do most Iranians support the nuclear deal? And I think it's a tricky one for you, given that the JCPOA is potentially as polarizing as General Qasem Soleimani was in Iran. Mm. Look, the the I mean, there's a lot of anecdotal sort of speculation about what Iranians think. According to polling, uh, Iranians overwhelmingly supported the JCPOA. Um, and you know, anecdotally, we saw the people pouring out into the streets and celebrating when the deal was inked. Over time, that support has crumbled. 
as has the support for Rouhani and everybody involved in the JCPOA. Similarly, uh, confidence that the United States will actually uphold the terms of any agreement has also crumbled. Um, so at, at this point, no. I, I, I think most Iranians think that it was, a, it was a total failure. And I think that they're not wrong at this point in time as far as they're concerned. Um, but that doesn't mean that Iranians don't support the concept of this this agreement. And if we can actually make this agreement work, I think Iranians will will once again overwhelmingly support the deal. I mean, it, it in theory is is good for ordinary people. It's good for the economy. It's in theory good for real substantive change inside of Iran as far as human rights, um, as far as uh, making an economy that actually works for ordinary people in the private sector and is not dominated by the IRGC and dominated by uh, state-led uh, and, and corrupt entities. Uh, so the potential of a JCPOA, absolutely. I think Iranians are are, are on board. Um, and, and, you know, also, I have to be cautious. Obviously, Iranians aren't monolithic. There are certainly those who say uh, we shouldn't be, tr- we, we can't trust the United States. We shouldn't do this. We should, uh, we shouldn't even seek these types of negotiations. We should be more insular. We should have an economy of resistance. Uh, and those, you know, those people are uh, in the driver's seat right now. Uh, and so the best way to actually uh, change those political dynamics that I think the U.S. has seriously distorted, not just recently, but for the last 40 years, has seriously distorted the political dynamics inside of Iran and put its thumb on the scale against change by imposing outside pressure. If we can if we can change that, if we can go back to the deal, if we can take steps, you know, I think there's an opportunity to take steps to make the deal work more for Iranians, uh, to address some of the complications and the sanctions relief, to figure out, is there a way we can allow for transactions to pass through the U.S. system? And maybe we, you know, either, you know, Iran may demand that as a cost for reentry. I don't think they're going to get very far with the other parties. Um, or that could be the topic of a follow-on, you know, small tweak to the deal. We extend some of the sunsets or we do something along those lines. And in exchange, the U.S. actually makes that sanctions relief work. And then you're going to see that support for the deal. And it's going to be undeniable if ordinary Iranians are actually benefiting from it. Now, this is a good opportunity for any of our panelists, if they want to offer their uh, parting words uh, before we end this discussion, Joe, Suzanne, Jamal. Uh, the, the danger over the next five months is that those who want to completely destroy this deal, who think that they're Rome and Iran is Carthage and they can raise it to the ground, that they might succeed. The second danger is that the incentives that have so far convinced Donald Trump that he should not wage a war, I don't think those have been because he's concerned about the body count. I don't think this is a president that has demonstrated any empathy for anyone other than himself. I think the president of the United States was convinced not to go to war because of the Tucker Carlson argument, that if you started a war with Iran, you would shut down the oil supply for, for a good part of the oil supply for the world. You would plunge the world into a recession. The U.S. would be part of that recession. You would lose election. So for the president of the United States, this is all about securing his election. Well, guess what? The COVID pandemic has removed that or altered that, 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 that part of the equation. We are already in a recession. And it may be that the president of the United States, come September, come October, decides that he is not going to win 
if things stay the way they are, despite U.S. Chinese and, and Russian help in, in getting him elected, despite voter suppression, despite his creating a false reality that tries to convince Americans that the world is fundamentally different from how it actually is, then he might need to do something dramatic and he might be tempted to wag the dog. So as we get closer to the election, as the political fortunes of this administration continue to sink, there becomes a rising risk of, of war, not just the stumbling into war that we talked about before, but possibly an intentional conflict to try to rally the American public around the flag. So that's the thing I worry about the most. How, what we do afterwards, how we can get back into the deal, well, you've got a report that sequences the steps brilliantly, that lays out carefully what you have to do uh, in a very methodical, very security-conscious way. I could just jump in, just some parting thoughts. I think uh, clearly we're, we all agree we're in favor of getting back into this deal um, because it's in U.S. interest. And uh, the last thing we want is an expanded nuclear program in Iran. But there's also another um, big um, reason for doing this. And, um, you know, as we look back on these last three and a half years, uh, we have seen this Trump administration um, tear up agreements, uh, tear down uh, institutions that help advance U.S. interests. And I think getting back into this deal as early as possible would demonstrate really in the clearest way possible uh, that the United States abides by its agreement. It would be a big effort to restore our credibility uh, after Trump. That's going to take a lot of time and effort, but this is a first step to doing that. And it also would immediately signal to our European allies and other allies uh, that uh, the administration is making a clear break with Trump's policy and is on course to try to repair uh, the big mistakes that this made. So I see the deal itself getting back into it quickly, advances U.S. interests for all sorts of reasons, but it's also a very clear signal that um, the policies of Donald Trump and the advisors around him are no longer um, um, in business. Uh, we're taking a new approach, and I think that's very important. Um, and yeah, just very briefly, I mean, I think that's that's so right on that, you know, a return to the Iran deal is almost, it's almost a litmus test for uh, the type of pivot that a new administration would make, as well as a force multiplier for those good intentions and that return to, uh, you know, normalcy. Um, I also, you know, I hope everybody reads this report. Um, I'm reminded of, you know, Barack Obama's inauguration speech when he talked about, you know, uh, extending his hand if other parties uh, open their fists or, or whatever the formulation was. But he also talked about, you know, he said uh, in a message that a lot of people thought was for Iran, uh, said that, you know, your people will judge you not based on what you can destroy, but what you can build. And over the past four years, it hasn't been Iran per se or any you know foreign adversary. It's been here domestically where we've had an administration that has been committed to destruction rather than building. When I look through this report, I mean, without being Pollyannish, I'm excited about the, the prospect of what can actually be discussed with Iran. There's so much opportunity, um, uh, whether it's, you know, a security architecture, architecture for the Persian Gulf, whether it's freeing 
Americans and other prisoners inside of Iran, uh, these exchanges, institutionally uh, institutionalizing regional dialogues. There's so much work to be done. And so without discounting how potentially damaging the next five months could be, and without discounting the potential for a, another Trump administration, um, I think there's so much to build. And as soon as we can get off this track of scorched earth and destruction, um, there's endless opportunity, but we have to do it right. And there has to be this, you know, this leadership and political will in order to make it happen. And I hope that that's the case. I feel like we could really go on forever here, but unfortunately all good things must come to an end. And I'm not talking about the JCPOA here. I'd like to thank all our remarkable panelists for this extremely engaging conversation. Jamal Abdi, Suzanne DiMaggio, and of course, Joe Serenciona. And a very heartfelt thank you for inviting me to moderate this very interesting panel. Uh, wishing you all a wonderful day. Thank you for being with us. Thank you.